1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed.
4: Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. My name is Dave Musgrove, I'm the magazine's editor, and I'm joined today by Deputy Editor Sue Wingrove. Hi. And Features Editor Rob Atter. Hello. This is our May 2010 podcast, and we've got three guests this month.
5: The Allies had known and spotted that was happening and had bombed them there. Well, I think it's very, very probable that the Second World War would have been over there and then.
4: That was Lawrence Rees on the German invasion of France in May 1940.
0: At this point, some brothers and sisters were split up and others lost their luggage in all the confusion. They ended up with absolutely nothing except the clothes on their backs, literally.
4: That was Gillian Mawson on the evacuee children who fled Guernsey after Dunkirk. As Herodotus
6: recounts the story, it's one of the Athenian generals, Miltiades, who manages to convince the others that enough is enough. It's time for Athens and the Plataeans to take on the Persians in open battle.
4: And that was Michael Scott on the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC.
7: This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title.
3: Now, in a moment, we'll hear about Dunkirk. But first, our figures tell us that typically more than 200,000 people download our podcast each month. These listeners are scattered far and wide around the world. We realise that many of them may never have seen a copy of the magazine, so we decided to put together a special digital sample magazine on our website, which you'll be able to see wherever you are. It's free, and all you need to do is go to our website at bbchistorymagazine.com and click on the link to our digital issue. We hope you enjoy it. And now to our first podcast guest.
7: Thanks, Sue. This month, it's 70 years since over 300,000 British troops were rescued from Dunkirk. But how significant a moment was it? And why did Hitler not press his advantage when he had the chance? Well, the man with the answers is historian and filmmaker Lawrence Rees, who has written about Dunkirk in our latest issue. I caught up with him recently to find out more about what Churchill famously described as a miracle of deliverance. Because the Germans invaded France so quickly in 1940, most people probably assume that they had much stronger forces than the Allies. But is this really the case?
5: No, it's not the case at all that the Germans were more powerful militarily in May 1940 when they invaded the Low Countries in France. In fact, in terms of first-line divisions, the Germans had less than 80 and the Western Allies more than 90 and equally the western allies had many more tanks than the germans people often think well this was a triumph of mechanized warfare that the germans were somehow much more mechanized with blitzkrieg tactics and so on than the west but it simply isn't the case in terms of tanks and men the fact is that the western allies were stronger
7: so that being the case why did the allies put up such feeble resistance in france
5: well there's a number of reasons why which really are to do with the way the Germans approached it and the way the Western Allies approached it. In the case of the Western Allies, their approach, they were hampered by a number of things. The first is an extraordinary level of arrogance about the danger of the threat. They really genuinely believed, I think, certainly on the French side, that the Germans could not succeed. They'd already had an example in the First World War of the Germans trying to attack through the low countries in Belgium and being stopped at the line of the Somme and a war of attrition took place there. And they believed that actually, the Germans simply weren't capable of winning this fight. That also penetrated into problems that they had between each other. It's always much easier to be a single dictator in a system than it is in many ways to be a democracy trying to deal with other democracies. And so of course the French were also having to deal with the British. We were having to deal with the problem that Belgium was neutral and how would they react? So there were all sorts of issues as between the Western allies as to how they were going to be able to respond and crucially how they were gonna be able to respond quickly. And that really became the absolute Achilles' heels of the problem for the Western Allies because they simply couldn't respond quickly to what was essentially an enormous surprise, which is the way the Germans were approaching this. What had happened with the Germans is they'd finally ended up with a plan by May 1940 that was really radical in the extreme, uh, an extraordinarily risky, radical plan. And that plan was to, yes, do what the Allies, Western Allies were expecting, which was attack through the Low Countries and Belgium uh, up in the north, but then actually to concentrate most of the attack on a point traveling through the Ardennes forests in the south and through towards Sudan in France. And that was an area where the Allies hadn't particularly prepared elaborate defenses because they thought they didn't think it was going to happen down there. And once the Germans attacked through there, there wasn't a swift response from the Allies. So basically what happened was it was an element of shock, surprise, and speed that completely, well, one friend's historian, Jeff Warrow, describes it completely discombobulated the Western Allies, which I think is a good word for it, That actually, they were headless chickens at that point. They didn't know what to respond, and the Germans were moving so swiftly. So essentially what happened is the Germans cut like a knife through butter towards the coast, reached the coast of France at the mouth of the Somme, and then suddenly, in a matter of days, bear in mind their memories there was the First World War lasting years, but now in a matter of days, the Germans had completely cut off the vast majority of British soldiers, certainly, who were trapped north of them at Dunkirk, and then south of the Germans who were then coming down through Belgium.
7: Do you think that if the Allies had put up a better fight, could they have actually defeated the Germans in France and perhaps even ended the war in 1940?
5: Well, I don't think it's a question of putting up a better fight in the sense that there were many brave British and French soldiers fighting in Belgium, fighting against the secondary thrust of the Germans. And they were, as I say, fighting as best they could and fighting bravely. So it isn't that, um, you know, that wonderful (laughs) comic line about the French being, you know, cheese eating surrender monkeys. Actually, there were a lot of brave Frenchmen fighting. So it's not a question of they should have been somehow braver and had more courage. I don't think that at all. The problem was the leadership. The fundamental problem was a leadership problem, which was not a refusal or a disinclination to believe that the Germans were doing something completely surprising, which is to have their army group rush to the coast through the Ardennes, and and that simply wasn't something that the uh, French high command in particular were processing in their minds, and therein was the giant problem. If they had, if they'd reacted extremely quickly to that, knowledge that that was happening, if they'd put up really strong reconnaissance planes and so on. I think one German described the German movement through the Ardennes Forest as the biggest traffic jam ever seen in Europe. I mean, it was an extraordinary attempt to get these tanks, trucks, motorised material, through often very, very narrow roads. Now, if the Allies had known and spotted that was happening and had bombed them there, well, I think it's very, very probable that the Second World War would have been over there and then.
7: That's really interesting to think about, but because I suppose we always think of it as being a six-year conflict now, but to think that the war could have been over in 1940...
5: Oh no, question about that. I mean, that's not just my view. I mean, um, Professor Adam Tooze, who's written a a brilliant, brilliant book called "Wages of Destruction" about the war economy, essentially of Nazi Germany, and has made a special study of all these sorts of things. He's in no doubt that the Germans are aware that if this rush to the coast doesn't work, they've lost the war. So that's the level of gamble that we're talking about. It's arguably one of the single biggest gambles ever taken in history, what they were doing here. If they were cut off, if they couldn't get through the Ardennes, if they didn't manage to cross the river at Sedan, all of those possibilities, then essentially the Germans would have had to fall back into a war of attrition, which they knew they could not win. There was no possibility of the Germans winning a war of attrition against the British, French, the other Western allies. And look what had happened in the first. World War. It just couldn't happen. So essentially Hitler is gambling the entire future of the war on the fact that the Western Allies won't spot what's really happening and they'll get to the coast. And it's a gamble he wins.
7: Now in your article that you've written for the magazine you've suggested that the invasion of France might have actually been a bigger gamble than Operation Barbarossa. Yes. And what do you see as the key differences between these two invasions?
5: Well, it isn't just me who thinks that. That's what it seemed like to everyone at the time, or everyone, a lot of people at the time. I mean, Hitler's generals thought, Halder, in particular, the chief of the German staff, thought that it's a much bigger gamble to invade France than it was to invade the Soviet Union in 1941. And there were lots of reasons for that. One of them was that the Western forces were thought to be Better equipped, better trained, better led than the Soviet forces, who were looked on in many ways, not just by the Germans, but by the British Americans, as not much better than a rabble. And that was a judgment that many people had made as a result of the purges of officers by Stalin in the 30s, but crucially, as a result of the Winter War against Finland a couple of years before, where the Red Army had had terrible problems defeating the relatively small army of the Finns. And so they'd shown in that that they really, really weren't up to the job. And so many people felt, well, we'll go into um, the Soviet Union, the whole place will collapse. I think it was Yodel who said, it's like a pig's bladder, one prick and it will disperse. There was this sense about that, about the Soviet Union. So actually, in that sense, at the time, the move into attacking Stalin's Soviet Union was not seen as a bigger gamble as the gamble in 1940.
7: Now, I suppose another important aspect of the invasion of France is what happened at Dunkirk. Yeah. And you've spoken to several historians on the subject. Why did you think Hitler didn't press his advantage and actually allow the British soldiers who were trapped at Dunkirk to escape?
5: Well, I believe that the essentially the world expert on Adolf Hitler, Professor Seren Kershaw, is right about this when he told me that well, this wasn't some Machiavellian plan of Hitler's to hold off and let the British escape so as to be able to make peace with the British Empire and so on, which some people have proposed. And this wasn't Hitler's being suddenly frightened about things or whatever. Basically what was happening on the day in May they decided to hold back from Dunkirk was that Rundstedt the commander had asked for this. It wasn't coming from Hitler, it was Rundstedt the commander had asked for this and he done that, really, to give his forces a chance to regroup, to preserve tanks, particularly for moving south, where there were still quite strong French units south of them. And also because they recognized that, well, it may not work having a mechanized force inside a town. And crucially, Goering had said, the head of the Luftwaffe had said that, well, we can bomb them there. We can simply destroy all these troops that are falling back here from the air. So... There was a whole variety of things coming together that in retrospect, we see this as an absolutely crucial moment of the war when they don't push forward and immediately attack the British and French troops trying to flee from through Dunkirk. But at the time, it was looked on, I think, not as such a monumental decision. It was simply a battlefield tactical decision that turned out to be wrong. It turned out to be wrong because Goering, who basically, as far as I can see in the war, pretty much every single time he promises Hitler or something will happen, that doesn't happen, notably at Stalingrad, when he promised the Sixth Army could be supplied when they're isolated by Luftwaffe planes, and that didn't happen either adequately. So going true to form, doesn't manage to make it happen, and so within four days, they've reneged on their halt order, and they're moving forward to Dunkirk again. But those four days, I think it's four or five days, were absolutely crucial in being able to allow the British and French to prepare to be able to get off.
7: And do you agree with Winston Churchill that the escape at Dunkirk was a miracle of deliverance?
5: Miracle sounds like it was from God. I think there are easily explicable reasons why it happened, namely the decision by the Germans not to push forward and the fact that there were relatively calm seas. But it certainly was hugely advantageous to the British to be able to get more than 300,000 troops away when they thought they were going to get maybe 40,000. Whether that actually was a turning point in the war or not, I'm less sure about, and that's because what's sometimes forgotten in all the propaganda about Dunkirk as this great miracle of deliverance and so on, is actually the troops came away with virtually only what they stood up in. All of this wonderful equipment that they'd had in France, all of that was left on the beaches for the Germans. And the Germans were astonished when they actually saw what had been left behind, in many cases, better equipment than they had. And so actually, the sheer incredible disadvantage that uh, Dunkirk caused the British in terms of the destruction and loss of equipment is often forgotten. If they'd moved forward and only 40,000 had got off, well, it's counterfactual, what would have happened? Again, Ian Kershaw wrote a fascinating article about this, imagining that it would have meant that uh, there would have been enormous pressure to come to some kind of a compromise peace with Hitler as a result, but would that have happened? Hard to know, because ultimately the reason that the Germans don't invade is the English Channel. It's not whether there's 300,000 or 40,000 troops sacked from Dunkirk without their equipment in Britain. It's because Goering again doesn't deliver and the RAF isn't destroyed, and crucially, they simply don't have the capacity in terms of boats, landing craft, all the rest of it, to cross the channel. So ultimately, it was the channel that prevented all that rather than Dunkirk.
7: So maybe the biggest victory at Dunkirk was a morale victory, perhaps, for Britain?
5: Yes, no question. No question that that was where it was a huge victory. It was this sense of, we British can turn uh, tragedy into triumph. That's what we do. Out of this terrible mess, we can pick something good. And J.B. Priestley, when he was broadcasting on Radio 4 at the time, pretty much said that in terms. He said, well, this is a sort of typical British thing, pluck an adversity and so on. That was absolutely something people could understand because they were anticipating a disaster. And actually, there's something positive that they could take from it. So that was a huge plus and a huge plus to Churchill just at the time when he had only been in power a matter of weeks
7: finally, the article that you've written in the latest issue of the magazine is based on interviews that you've conducted for your new website on Second World War history. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about what else visitors will be able to find on this yep. site?
5: This is ww 2 historycom and I've been working on this with the team for um, a year and a half, at least now, on leaving the BBC. And really, I wanted to do it because, having spent my time for 20 years making television series and writing books about the Second World War, I came to see that actually the web offers a fantastic new opportunity to do history like this. That's because you can have videos. There's more than three hours of videos on the site, specially made. You can have testimony. There's more than three hours of testimony. You can have words. I've written 50,000, 60,000 words about key moments of the war. You can have other experts. I've interviewed, as you say, more than two dozen of the very, very best historians in the world on this. And their testimony in the site is more than a quarter of a million words. And you can have people interacting with it through a big interactive timeline we've got and so on. So actually what you can do is to is to use all sorts of different media all in the one place and people can then by going between things and between types of contributions and types of media what they can actually do is participate much more in forming their own narrative of what's happening and they can also contribute of course via forums and blogs and so on so you can actually interact with it in a way that a television series or book doesn't let you do and and it's you know it's i think it's it's just tremendously exciting
7: That was Lawrence Rees. You can read his article about Dunkirk in our latest issue. Plus, as you've just heard, you can now visit his new website, ww2history 2 historycom
3: And so, on to our second interview. With the evacuation of Dunkirk, and with northern France in the hands of the Germans, the British government took the decision not to defend the crown dependencies of the Channel Islands. British forces were withdrawn and the inhabitants of the islands, which are of course just a few miles off the coast of Normandy, had to make the decision whether to evacuate their homes or stay and face the threat of German invasion. Earlier I spoke to Gillian Mawson, a researcher at the University of Manchester, who's been looking into the child evacuees from Guernsey. Now Gillian, perhaps you could start by telling us what happened on Guernsey after the British forces withdrew. As the troops began to leave on
0: the 17th of June, the British government hadn't provided any evacuation plans for the Guernsey population and they couldn't promise them a large number of evacuation ships at that time. On the 18th of June, Guernsey's Education Council held an emergency meeting and decided that the evacuation of the school children must take place. The next day, instruction leaflets were printed and given to the school children so they could show them to their parents and a special edition of the Guernsey newspaper was printed as well, giving those details and saying that evacuation would start the next day. Personal accounts show there was confusion and panic amongst the islanders because they had only a few hours to make the crucial decision to send their children away or not. On the 20th of June, ships of all kinds began to arrive to collect the children and their teachers, who endured very rough overnight boat crossings. They arrived in Weymouth at dawn, where they sat for hours waiting for permission to disembark. So they arrived in Weymouth um, and
3: then they disembarked. So what happened next? Because some of them had little more than the clothes they had on their backs,
0: didn't they? That's right. They uh, were all taken to the Pavilion Theatre where they had some food and they were given a health check. And after a few hours, they were taken to the railway station where they boarded steam trains for the journey north. None of the children had seen a steam train before. And so some of them said they were quite frightened by them. At this point, some brothers and sisters were split up and others lost their luggage in all the confusion, so they ended up with absolutely nothing except the clothes on their backs, literally. The evacuees weren't told where they were being sent to either, and at the end of the journeys, nearly two days after they'd left Guernsey, thousands of them arrived in smoke industrial towns in Lancashire, Cheshire and Yorkshire, while some were even sent as far as Glasgow. Okay, so
3: there they are. They've just arrived in, in these various towns. Um, so what happened next? And where did they live for, well, what would turn out to be five years away from their from their families?
0: Well, after a week or two, Sue, this, after sleeping in public buildings, local families took the children into their own homes and became their foster parents for five years. A number of the Guernsey mothers moved into empty, unfurnished houses and even shop premises with their children, and they often shared with other Guernsey mothers with their children. In addition, some of the Guernsey headmasters decided to set up their own Guernsey schools in empty buildings, and that was to keep the pupils of the teachers all together during the war.
3: So I believe they had a great response from the
0: local community, is that correct? That was, it was extraordinary, So Local newspapers reported the fact that the evacuees had arrived with nothing and that their families were trapped on Guernsey under German occupation. Immediately cash donations, plus thousands of items such as toys, clothes, shoes, bedding and furniture were sent in, often from people who had very little of their own. Private companies were generous as well. One company gave evacuees 60 new mattresses. Another one sent shoes to the children whilst grocery shops sent them fruit and vegetables, and a large number of cinemas, football clubs, and pleasure grounds admitted the children free of charge at weekends so the
3: children settled in and they, they stayed
0: they kept their Guernsey the
3: identity didn 't they I mean some of the as you were saying, the groups were housed together, and the schools were kept together. Um, So presumably that helped to compensate for for not actually having their families around them. So meanwhile, back in Guernsey, what was happening with the families? Because
0: the Germans were now in occupation, weren't they? That's right. The islanders, I believe, had to follow very strict rules laid down by the occupiers. And the parents who had sent the children away on the evacuation ships had no idea where the children had ended up. And it wasn't until mid-1941 that short letters sent by the Red Cross organisation began to be delivered between Guernsey and England. But these letters were costly. A lot of the children couldn't afford to pay for them and they could only write 25 words or less, which were then strictly censored by German officials. And it often took up to a year to get a reply to your letter.
3: That's amazing, isn't it, for small children um, in particular to be separated from their parents like that. Um, So they stayed, as we know, for many years
0: in in their new homes. Um, What happened after the war? Well, the evacuees obviously wanted to return home straight away, most of them, but it had to be staggered as there'd been a great deal of damage done to Guernsey, buildings, houses and businesses had been destroyed, and barbed wire and mines had to be removed from the beaches, and I think a lot of the German soldiers were actually made to do that work before they were um, were allowed to leave the island. Personal accounts show that some of the younger Evacuee children had become very fond of their foster parents over the five years and they were reluctant to return home to families that they had little memory of. Some of the Evacuees didn't return to Guernsey at all, they'd started college or they'd found good jobs or they'd become engaged to local people. When those that did return to our island got there, some of the Guernsey parents didn't recognise their own children as they stepped off the boats. One evacuee told me she'd left Guernsey in 1940 as a teenager and returned in 1945 as a mother with a newborn baby. As a result, her parents didn't recognise her and certainly didn't know how to relate to her. Some of the evacuees went back to Guernsey only to return to England again within six months. Even today, the evacuees continue to thank the people of England and Scotland for their welcome and most are still in touch with the families who cared for them.
3: Now, you've been talking to the um, former evacuees, haven't you, to record their experiences and to get their personal accounts. Um, And if any listeners were, in fact,
0: evacuees and would like to be interviewed, um, you'd like them to get in touch. And also, if I may, I'd like to also hear from any of the volunteers who helped the Guernsey evacuees when they arrived in Britain. I have only found about four or five. And everyone can find my contact details at the end of my article in your magazine.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
3: And that was Gillian Mawson, whose research has been facilitated by a grant from the Scaludi Foundation and the Institute of Historical Research. If you were a child evacuee or were involved in looking after the evacuees and would like to be interviewed, you can find Gillian's contact details at the end of her feature in this month's magazine. Or we can put you in touch. You can contact us through our website at bbchistorymagazine.com.
4: And now for our final interview, which takes us back in time to ancient Greece and the clash between Athens and Persia at the famous Battle of Marathon. It took place two and a half thousand years ago in 490 BC. Michael Scott has written a trenchant and invigorating piece for the magazine about it, and I had a chat with him about the battle and its aftermath. It's 2,500 years since marathon i think the first thing we need to do is just get a bit of context here Mm. and just find out exactly what's going on who's where who's doing what and what's happening so what's happening in 490 bc
6: 490 bc the athenian democracy first of all is in its infancy Mm -hmm. it really has only just come onto the picture and is still quite unstable as a political system within athens it's the previous tyrants that had been control of athens a chap called hippias Mm -hmm. has run off to join the persians And on the borders of the Persian Greek world and the Ionian coast of Asia Minor, there has been a revolt against Persia. Athens has decided to cheekily send military support to the revolt. That revolt is eventually put down by the Persians, but the Persians have decided that Athens and Greece can no longer be allowed to get away with this kind of thing. And so the king, Persian Darius, decides to invade. And he brings with him Hippias, the former tyrant of Athens, who is hoping, with the help of the Persian king, to be put back in charge at Athens.
4: Now, would I be right in thinking that Persia was a much more powerful entity than Athens at the time?
6: Absolutely. The Persian Empire was enormous. Greece really, in comparison, looks like a sort of flea on the hide of an enormous Persian rhino, something like that. But at the same time, Greece had grown to become an annoyance enough to Persia and to the Persian king for him to choose to direct his forces against it.
4: Okay, so the Persians arrive and they arrive in number and they arrive with the intention of seeing to Athens and, and dealing with this upstart power, I suppose. And I think you have said in your piece that you've written for the magazine that the Persian army numbered something like 300,000 to the Athenian 9,000. Now, obviously, that's quite a disparity. But one question that, that that I think is worth asking is, which a correspondent to the magazine previously asked is, how accurate can these numbers be when it's such a long time ago? Is that true? Can we be sure that that's anywhere near the same sort of figure?
6: Historians would argue that on the Greek side, the fact that it was about 9,000 Athenians and 1,000 Plataeans who came to stand with Athens that day Mm. is fairly accurate, not too bad. The Persian numbers, on the other hand, historians would argue, have been vastly inflated by Mm. the ancient historical sources, Herodotus, but then also Plutarch and Pausanias. In reality our best guess would probably be that the Persians had something like maybe 35,000 troops. So a lot less, but still a lot more than the Athenians had on the battlefield.
4: Yeah. So the Athenians, heavily outnumbered, and yet they managed to come through and win the day. What happens? How do they manage to do that?
6: Well, Marathon is chosen by the Persians because Hippias, that former tyrant of Athens that they have with them, tells them this is a great place to land, where you can land your ships. And in fact, it was at Marathon that Hippias' father... Pisistratus, a former tyrant of Athens, had landed to begin his campaign to take back the city Mm. back in 546. So Marathon is chosen because of its, it's a good access to the sea. The Persians unload their superior numbers. The Athenians scramble every available fighter to get to Marathon. And the geography of the location is there is a bay, the Bay of Marathon, and then around that narrow passes which allow you out of the bay into the more mountainous area around it that stands between Marathon and Athens. And the Athenians... Decided to camp in those narrow passes. So, a place where their smaller numbers wouldn't actually be that much of a disadvantage against the vaster Persian army. But that creates a stalemate. The Persians can't leave, and the Athenians. Won't engage them on the yeah. open battlefield. And as Herodotus recounts the story, it's one of the Athenian generals, Miltiades, who manages to convince the others that enough is enough. It's time for Athens and the Plataeans to take on the Persians in open battle. The reasons for this we're not quite sure, and Herodotus is very hazy on them. But we do know that on August 12, 490 BC, the Athenians start to run headlong at the Persians, screaming at them as they went. And Herodotus makes the point that this had never been been done before the persians had never seen it before and they were really scared petrified by this very well trained hoplite athenian army screaming running towards them at full pace and the athenian line took the flanks of the Persian army, completely by surprise, and sent them running back towards the ships. The centre of the Persian army was much stronger, and it was also facing a much weaker Athenian line. So for a while, the Persian centre managed to hold their ground. Mm. But then the Athenian flanks that had been so successful wheeled in onto the Persian centre, and so the Persian centre was attacked on three sides, and it was forced to fall back as well.
4: Okay, And as a result of that, the Persians up sticks and, and went back home?
6: Well, almost. The Persians were pushed back to their ships. Many died in the sort of marshy areas around the Bay of Marathon. But then they, some sources say, took got into their ships and sailed back along the coast towards the southern tip of Athens, down towards Sunion and the southern tip of Attica, to try and find another landing area where they could land their troops and have another go. And this is where the remaining Athenian soldiers tired out, exhausted after having fought this battle against such superior numbers, marched the 26 miles quickly back to Athens to take up positions just in case this might happen. The Persians, according to the sources, seeing the Athenians ready again to fight them, decided that it wasn't worth it and they sailed back across the Aegean Sea to Persia.
4: Let's talk about that 26 miles for a second, because obviously there's two reasons why we're talking about this now. It's the 2,500th anniversary, but also this month it'll be the London Marathon, and lots of people will be running a similar distance, and obviously there's a link between the two. But we need to just clarify who ran where at Marathon, because it's not quite as simple as you might think, is it?
6: No, it's not, and it depends entirely on which ancient source you look at as to which kind of run was done by whom and Mm. where. In Herodotus, a man called Pheidippides is sent to run not from Marathon to Athens, but from Marathon to Sparta, which is a lot further than 26 miles. Mm. It's about 280 miles round trip. He's the man who makes that run, is told by the Spartans that, sorry, we're in the middle of a religious festival, can't help you. He then has to run all the way back. Marathon to tell his soldiers, his Athenian fellow comrades, no help, more help is coming. They then fight the battle. And then in the earlier versions of the story, all the Athenians head back the 26 miles that separates Marathon from Athens. Once you get into about the 1st century BC and then in the 1st century AD, you get different versions of this story. Until in the 1st century AD, in Lucian, you get the story that Pheidippides, having run from Marathon to Sparta, Sparta to Marathon, having fought the Battle of Marathon, then runs from Marathon to Athens, where he cries out to the people of Athens, Nenechesmen, we have won! And then he collapses and dies. And it's that final run of Pheidippides, the 26 miles from Marathon to Athens, that is recreated in the marathon race today. In fact, when the first Olympic Games, the modern Olympic Games, was reinstituted in 1896, it was suggested, because the Games were being held in Athens, that the marathon run, the Pheidippides run from marathon to Athens, would be a great Olympic event. And so it was called the marathon, because it came from marathon, and the distance was roughly 26 miles. So there you get the distance of the modern-day marathon. But in fact, the precise distance of the modern-day marathon, 42.195 kilometres or something like that, wasn't actually fixed until 1908 when the Olympics were held in Britain and the distance was extended just a little bit so that it went precisely from Windsor Castle to the Royal Box in the Olympic Stadium in London.
4: Now, I've run the London Marathon and I got to the end of it and I felt like collapsing and dying and I didn't, and I hadn't run 280 miles there and back and fought a fight as well. But you've run... The marathon marathon, haven't you? The Athens
6: marathon, yeah. So
4: what's that like? Is, what would it have been like marching back there in 490? I mean,
6: every year you can do the Athens Classic Marathon, which tries to recreate the route as best as possible from marathon to Athens. And I ran that in 2007. It's an extraordinary event. You start on the battlefield of Marathon. The first five kilometres you run past the tumulus, the burial ground, burial mound that was made for the 192 Athenian dead from the Battle of Marathon, which is still there today. You run around it before you head off into the distance to go back to Athens. And it's then that you realise that This is hilly terrain, the Greek terrain. You're constantly going up and down hills. And it doesn't help you pass by a few sort of statues of Pheidippides the runner on the way, but they don't really (laughs) help to inspire you through those last kilometres until you emerge back into the cityscape of modern Athens and then run through to the Panathenaeco Stadio, the stadium that was built for the 1896, the first modern Olympics in Athens. And there you thankfully crossed the finishing line. I was just doing it in normal running gear, but there were other runners who were doing it in full recreation hoplite armour, and I have no idea how they managed to do it.
4: <laughs> OK, now, just sort of looking at the bigger context of this, there's this famous quote that you've mentioned in your feature about a marathon being more important than, than Hastings, which was made by a historian a, a while ago. What truth is there in that? I mean, how significant is this battle for British history? How, how does it link to the two?
6: John Stuart Mill in 1846 Mm. said that as an event in history, the Battle of Marathon is more important than the Battle of Hastings for us in Britain. And it's actually very hard to understand what that means. I mean, you can play the what-if game. Mm. If the Persians had conquered Greece, what would have happened to the Greek world and then the Roman world and then future European history? And, of course, it would have been different. But I think there are two ways to understand the significance of the Battle of Marathon. The first is for the ancient world. And for Athens, it was hugely significant, because this was an Athenian victory. Mm-hmm. No one else could claim it, have a part in it, you know, it was Athenian victory. And it echoes all the way through the ancient world that the Athenians and Marathon, it becomes a, a part of their identity. For the modern world, I think the way to understand Mill is is actually to understand the sort of world in which he was writing in the 19th century. Phil Hellenism, the love of Greece had recently become a relatively new phenomenon. It had been reawakened, this sort of understanding, awareness and acknowledgement of ancient Greece as an incredibly important culture. The Greek War of Independence had recently been fought. Greece emerging once again as a free and independent nation. Byron had gone to Greece and died fighting for this. Other poets were beginning to write poems about the ancient Greek world. In fact, uh, there's a Browning poem, Pheidippides, which is dedicated to the marathon runner. And it's in that time, in that sort of cultural context, that historians writing you know great historical tomes that try to understand the whole of history, the wide picture of history, created a, a concept of understanding history that puts the West and freedom against the East and tyrannical despotism. And in that, you know, and Herodotus's account of the war between Greeks and barbarians and within that, the Battle of Marathon as the key battle between the Western Greeks, the Athenians and the Eastern Persians, becomes an incredibly important marker for the kind of history that historians of the 19th century wanted to tell. So I think it's in that context that Mill's quote can be best understood. But it leaves a question for us today in the 21st century. Do we still think that the Battle of Marathon was just as important an event or even more so than the Battle of Hastings for English history? Do we still want that kind of historical setup to be the one that we adopt now? And I think probably a lot more people would disagree with it.
4: That was Michael Scott. You can read his feature in the May issue of the magazine, and you can also follow his regular blogs on the ancient world on our website, bbchistorymagazine.com. Michael's latest book is Delphi and Olympia, which is published by Cambridge University Press. BBC History
7: magazine is published each month in the United Kingdom and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or you can take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and, of course, on the website.
3: And don't forget, you can look at our free digital issue of the magazine that we've put on the website, especially for our worldwide listeners to the podcast. That's at bbchistorymagazine.com. Take a look and let us know what you think.
4: That's it for our May 2010 podcast. You can follow us and our historical happenings on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash BBC History Mag and indeed on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. And of course our next podcast will be in a month's time. Hope you can join us then.